in my hands, I am holding an actual yellow pages. What? I am holding the yellow pages that quite honestly, if anybody wants to look at a map and you just like colored in the entire area between Austin, Texas and San Antonio, Texas, that's what this covers. Lots of doctors, lots of churches listed in here as I kind of thumb through. The book itself is saddle stitched. Well, what that ultimately does is it leaves you with pages at the end that you have to fill. They've run out of content, right? Like there's not enough listings so I thought you might would be interested in a few of these uh, pages of filler content because they are blog posts. Oh, what? The first one I see here is the benefits of having a hobby. There is a uh, an entire page on reasons to get a pet. And then the last two I'll point out, one, how to get back into reading. Mm. And then the last one, it is podcast recording the basics. In the yellow pages. <laughs> in the back of the yellow pages. I'm actually going to set this to the side. I may need to look into this a little bit. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 370 of Touchpoint. Chris Boyer, Reed Smith, as always. Reed, I am uh, looking to find out what type of Yellow Pages ad we should run for the Touchpoint Podcast Network. I mean, this would make amazing cover art. I wouldn't list our phone number in the Yellow Pages ad. I'd list our URL of our website. True. I mean, the front the inside the front cover is an entire page about calling 911. <laughs> I mean, do you need? Uh, okay. Anyway, I'm going to move on. I can just spend all day talking about this phone book. But, but no, we're going to talk about some other things. Obviously, you probably figured this out by the title. But before we get to that, quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Over there, you can sign up for the TPS report. That's a weekly email with five articles to start your week. Hopefully, that is a little value add to you, the listener or tuning into the show. And so we're going to, uh, before we get started, give you a quick pause here. Again, touchpoint.health, give you an opportunity to sign up for the TPS report, and then we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. (laughs) 
Today, we're going to take a walk down memory lane. No, not really. But we are going to talk about social, which is kind of funny because that's where, you know, kind of how you and I met with a lot of the work that we were doing at that time. Uh, a lot of this was new, unheard of, varying degrees of understanding and acceptance and, and some of that kind of stuff. But, you know, part of that, and I think really the value there, and we'll hear from in our interview later, we had a chance to sit down and talk to Susanna Fox about her new book. But is this idea, you know, it's funny when you talk about e-patient Dave and some of those, but this, you know, kind of e-patient movement, right, where people were getting more actively involved in their own care. Yeah. Patient portals were coming around. You could get to information. It was like, what do you do with that? How do you take control of it, et cetera? So we thought it'd be interesting to kind of walk back through that and and really kind of gut check around some of this stuff of, is this still a thing? Is it still important? Is it still a topic? And what does that look like for us? Or is it at the time, I remember you and I were, we were co-authors in a book about the revolution, bringing the revolution to health. Oh, yeah. Is it still revolutionary? As we talk about this, you know, social media, by the way, it's not lost on me that not this last year, but the year before I made a prediction that social media use in healthcare would be declining. Doesn't seem to be the case, does it? Well, and it kind of depends on how you define it, right? Like, do we mean Facebook specifically? Do you count YouTube in that? Right. Like it, I, I don't know. It, it's just, it's an interesting evolution of the space a little bit, right? It was really hard to believe or hard to think that Facebook would decline. I mean, everybody was on it. That was the, it was just like, man, I don't know how we get away from this. Like, this is it. And we were all intellectually honest and understood that like, you know, there was things like MySpace that had gone away. So how are we so sure that Facebook wouldn't? But it was just hard to believe. One of our, speaking of Susanna Fox, uh, the Pew Research Center, uh, which you'll hear a little bit about that later, but that was kind of where where we both first became aware of her and her work was when her she spent some time there uh, some years ago. But I do love that site, the research they do, the studies, the findings, things like that. And as of January the 31st of 2024, they've had you know a report that they continue to update over time called Americans Social Media Use. Mm. I'm excited to see this, right? Because I, every time we see a Pew Internet study, we always are surprised by something new that we learn. We'll, we'll link to it. We're going to take you through every little detail of, of this entire report. But thought it might be interesting as we think about social and kind of the evolution of this space. You know, where do we find ourselves? What, what seems to be important to folks right now? Well, no surprise, YouTube is like the most popular social network platform. Facebook's still up there, right? I mean, it's that they say in here that it's a dominant player in the online landscape. You know, almost 70% of folks report using the platform. How, what do we mean by using? I don't know. We could kind of get lost in that, right? Yeah, absolutely. If somebody said, hey, do you use Facebook? I'd have to stop and think for a second, but I do have an account, like the apps on my phone. And I use Facebook Marketplace quite a bit yeah, like yeah, to sell stuff, right? So again, you can kind of get lost in the semantics a little bit. But YouTube is interesting. I, I have found in recent years that I probably use YouTube more now than I ever have. I agree too, for different reasons, right? Before it was like finding funny videos or doing you know, little things. But now it's like more how-to information. Maybe that's reflects of our age though, Reed. I don't know. Probably like I watch chiropractor videos and stuff like that. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Facebook still really important. You know, almost half of folks uh, apparently are using Instagram. I would have guessed it was higher than that. I guess I you probably if you slice this 
you know, relative demographics that changes quite a bit, I'm sure, uh, but still big usage there. LinkedIn also, you know, about a third of folks, but again, that that's a specific thing, right? Like my parents aren't on LinkedIn and, and aren't going to be, but I would be curious if you, you know, plucked out people that were 30 to 55 years old, what would that number be? They actually do break down later on in the study, right? About age differences of the people who use the app. And LinkedIn, here they say that the ages are, on average, the mean age is around 44 on LinkedIn. Yeah, there you go. That, that feels right. But they're talking here about a big, big upswing with, with TikTok oh, right? yeah, over, right. the last, over the last few years. You could probably make the same case for, for Snapchat to some extent, depending on, again, the demographic. As I'm looking at these charts in this article, and again, we'll, we'll link to it. The, the interesting one for me is the little bit of a decline around Facebook utilization. But then you see stuff like Reddit, all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, are we still doing that? Like that's back, a, that's a thing, huh? TikTok has the biggest kind of swing, I guess, up, you know, relative to any of these platforms. Pinterest, surprisingly, I, I, I hear about people using Pinterest. You use Pinterest? Uh, maybe I'm not the demographic, but no, I don't use Pinterest at all. I don't either, but apparently people do. I don't know, man. I, I don't know if it's just because you and I spent so much time in this space, what, 10, 15, 12 years, 15 yeah, years ago yeah. even, that you become jaded to certain topics sometimes. And for me, that's probably social. I still use Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it. I haven't posted in forever, but for sports, it's pretty interesting, like college recruiting and, you know, some of the, you know, I'm a big Ole Miss guy. And so, you know, follow their accounts. They post a lot of information there. It's still really useful for me in that context. Maybe it's becoming more specialized. I think what might be interesting for us, Reed, is before we go to that great interview you did with Susanna Fox, maybe we could talk a little bit about, let's go back and let's see the social internet, as I call it now. Has it evolved with technology and also user behavior? I mean, is that why we're... We're still talking about it, but talking about it in different ways. I think the answer is yes, but maybe we could go through and, and, and take a look. In the late 90s, early 2000s is is where you could probably put a flag in the ground that, that some of this became a thing. Friendster is probably the one that comes to mind for me. You could even maybe talk about some of the download platforms, even like a Napster or something of just you know sharing of information if you kind of want to broaden it a little bit. But that's when people started, obviously, accessing the internet a little more consistently. Like you could Google stuff and it wouldn't be like, sorry, there's there's nothing, there's no return here, right? That's, I guess, when it started actually being something useful, maybe. Well, and that kind of leads to, you know, why did that become what it is? Anything ending with a stir, right? Um, Friendster, Napster, whatever. It's because more and more people were online and it was designed to connect those people that are online. That was the, the the precipice of all of this social stuff is about connecting with others online that maybe have like interests of yours. That leads to the second kind of era in the mid 2000s. That's when like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, all of those platforms kind of come into play. That's different because now that focused on content and almost real-time communication, right? So it, it encouraged people creating their own content and encouraged people real-time sharing that content with each other. Then you kind of get into some of the multimedia introductions, Instagram, Snapchat, et cetera. Early 2010s 
side note, what do you call the 2000s? Is that the aughts? The aughts, yeah. Maybe we call them the aughts. Yeah, like the- <laughs> uh, but you bring in multimedia, so you've got some of the stuff like Instagram, right? Where, where everything kind of takes this shift away from just written content to things like pictures and videos and stories and, you know, those, those types of things. Again, you, you can kind of follow the evolution here, right? I mean, of, of what people want. And then as the technology gets smarter. Right. And that's like that time period is when we all had smartphones that had cameras attached to it. Right. So suddenly that's why it, that's what it was. Then we get into messaging platforms in the 2010s, WhatsApp, WeChat, Messenger, those things started to happen, right? Those are those became social networks unto themselves. And you know, if you think about that, it it really gets down to this kind of growing need of a private communication. Remember, we were talking not on this podcast, but you and I offline way back when we were talking about this whole thing about Facebook Messenger and WeChat is is a need to privatize communications now because we're all focused on intimate direct communications with one another we're kind of tired and overwrought with the uh the whole sharing everything publicly well to that point everybody got tired and overrun so along came personalization you know folks got smart i guess and we're like you know what we can get better engagement if we show things that are more personal or more personalized to folks, right? So that's where the algorithms and some of the things came in to really tailor these experiences. I mean, you could see kind of the parallel here because that's when people started to want to have those tailored experiences. Then you get into the live streaming e-commerce in the mid-2010s. Users and brands interacted real-time to conduct transactions directly. This kind of coexists with the advancements of live streaming and e-commerce, right? So think about like Twitch and other things that kind of came into play there. And then, you know, also the the whole thing about the online shopping carts and being able to do appointments online and stuff like that, that all kind of fits together at this time period. And then everybody was like, wow, that's a lot. And so I'd like my privacy back. And so, <laughs> and so again, you know, kind of bringing us more to present, you know, that's where people are starting to really, you know, think through the idea of the repercussions of some of this. Where is my information online? You know, starting to realize you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. How do I gain some level of control just over my privacy and security? And after the break, you and I will come back. We'll talk a little bit about the fact that this now social internet, the influence it has on the usefulness of consumers in healthcare. We'll do that right after this pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, Live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. So before the break, read, we kind of went through sort of like a high-level overview of social internet and how it grew and why it grew from technology and other things like that. Now we're going to focus a little bit in on 
is as useful for that patient or that consumer in healthcare. I think that becomes really important piece here because as we're evolving this and the healthcare consumer is evolving, there is a, a sort of a, a, a commonality around this. So let, let's dive into some of the things that we illustrate from data and research that show how the utility of social media pertains to different aspects of their lives. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, the first one is why most people, we just talked about it with YouTube, right? It's the kind of the DIY or education type utility, right? So how do you find information, advice, and otherwise, you know, could be from, you know, news outlets. It could be from individuals or businesses or whatever it may be. Yes, there is an entertainment factor to YouTube, but this is one of the main reasons, uh, at least people that I've talked to, go to platforms like that. They're not looking on Google for the instructions or manual. They just go to YouTube and key in what they're trying to do. And certainly somebody's made a video about it. Another thing to think about, right, is this the whole concept of this connectivity. The primary utility all along, even from the onset, is about connecting you to other people that are like you and developing relationships that way, irrespective of those geographical barriers. I remember in the early days, we, we, we convened panels of patients that found each other online. They have rare conditions, but they found each other online and they talked to each other and what a support that was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That still is so valuable. And you and I still do it in different ways, right? Now we maybe go to Reddit groups. Maybe we go out to you know YouTube to find how-to videos or whatever it might be. Social internet has augmented the way we can interact and engage and connect with one another. Now it's with video, it's uh, with TikTok, short video, short form video, where we can maybe make people laugh. But there still is that concept of connectivity. And that's the social aspect of what the this intranet uh, phenomenon is. Next one I'll call out, uh, I mentioned Facebook Marketplace earlier, is the commerce aspect of this. Certainly, it's hard to imagine a world without Amazon at this point or what that, you know, Instacart or, or something like that. How do we not just discover and research, but actually transact and make purchases? There's still something to be said and there's certain things that you, you still have to or want to buy locally or in person. But this convenience factor of what is become commerce in our lives uh, wouldn't be possible without um, the internet, obviously. I mean, think about commerce and healthcare for us, making appointments online, transacting with, you know, there's, there's all of that happening, paying your bills online, right? Even I mean, care delivery, right? Yeah, care, all of it, right? It's whole new ways to use these tools. And with commerce, it also brings the necessity of personalization of privacy, of secure connections, right? And even if we think of like Web 3.0 stuff like blockchain and other things, right? It still is rooted in the fact of being able to connect with one another in in such a strong way. And in this particular case, transact with one another, whatever that transaction might be. Here's another place, right? When we think about engagement in healthcare, social media is extremely useful for disseminating public health information and patient communities and other things around those natures. Now, of course, there's also, and we'll link an article in the show note, we won't go into it, but an article I shared with you, Reed, earlier this week, that, you know, there's also some cases up in court to say, 
is health misinformation on social media. Mm -hmm. But still, the whole point here is we see organizations, public health organizations, using it for pandemic communication, for mapping outbreaks, those sorts of things, and tracking it back to these social networks. And I think that's a really great application here. The next, you know, I'm going to kind of group the next two, one, public opinion and advocacy, and then consumer feedback and reviews. Um, so one, this idea that that certainly people can use this connectivity to voice their opinion, to advocate for certain things, to understand other people's viewpoints, maybe in those aspects, but then also to consume other people's experiences, right? Through that feedback and review process. So, you know, initially early on, that was stuff like TripAdvisor, right? And it was used for, you were planning trips, where to stay, what to do, things like that. And obviously it didn't take very long for this to become important for healthcare. It's just, you know, extrapolating out this idea of word of mouth, but again, you know, kind of that world has become really important and valuable in those kind of consideration phases of the healthcare journey. Now, don't forget, with any kind of social environment, there's also this whole concept around entertainment. You can't overlook that because people also are information overload. And so how are you going to cut through that? You're going to be able to start to share information in an entertaining or a, a casual way. And what has that led to, right? This led to the shortening of videos, right? The TikTok generation, right? Of really quick snippets or live streaming. But all of it done, guised in a way to cut through all the noise that's out there. And ultimately, what that leads to is this necessity of participation in these social networks. You also have to have a little bit of a levity to it. Well, I wouldn't say levity, but a, an approachability to what you're doing. Well, I mean, this was the pink glove dance or, or whatever it was some years ago where we were, you know, there's still an entertainment factor to the content that we produce at times. Last thing we'll, we'll kind of call out before we go to this interview, mental health, well-being, even the broader kind of idea of behavioral health. I think what's interesting about this, and we've seen it maybe uh, I'm a big sports guy, so I've seen sports figures specifically talk about mental health, right? So I think of Kevin Love that's played for the Cleveland Cavaliers for a long time and him talking about his struggles with anxiety specifically and, and depression and that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, how was he doing that? Yes, he plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers, and so it ends up you know, broadly on some kind of mass media pieces. But a lot of this was through social channels. You know, that's how a lot of this information was sent out. And it really kind of helped, I think, uh, help people understand and, you know, and even do away with some of the stigma around some of these types of concerns, being able to connect with people where they're there for these other things, right? The entertainment, the DIY aspect or the education, et cetera, um, is, is a good call out for, you know, how that, that potentially plays out. So clearly there's a utility, right, of people using social media and it aligns very nicely the advancements of social networks. So while it may not be revolutionary anymore, it certainly has led to this, what I guess what we're calling this show, right? The sort of this democratization, right? Of empowerment, of patient empowerment. And I know that you have a really great interview that illustrates this, right? It, it, it does. I was excited. Gosh, I'm trying to think when that was. It's, it was a few weeks ago, maybe. I happened to be on LinkedIn and saw that her new book was coming out. 
and uh, was like, oh man, this is a great opportunity to, to dive in on a, on a really interesting topic. And so she does have a new book and we talked about it in the interview a little bit, but it's really around the patient-led revolution in, in medical care. And so the book's name is, is Rebel Health, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in the interview. was excited to get to sit down with her for a few minutes, talk about the book, talk about the utility of the book and how it kind of applies to not just those leading the revolution, so to speak, but those of us as administrators, executives, as care providers, et cetera. So we'll do this. We'll pause here, uh, another break, a quick break, and then uh, we'll be back uh, with Susanna Fox to talk about her new book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right. I am here with Susanna Fox, author of the new book, Rebel Health. Thanks for hanging out for a few minutes. Glad to do it. You know, I originally, I think, found you and started kind of following along from your days at Pew, which is uh, maybe been just a minute now. I think we've had a pandemic since then and, and <laughs> some of those types of things. But we'd love to, I, you know, I know this was kind of always in, in your wheelhouse and, and would love to hear just a little bit, you know, what's the kind of back of the book cover or whatever about, you know, what the book's about. Sure. I wrote this as an action-oriented, optimistic field guide to the underground patient-led revolution in medical care because I have had the privilege of spending time in online communities and offline communities of people living with rare diseases, life-changing diagnoses, chronic conditions. And the more you spend time with patients, survivors, and caregivers, the more you'll see that they are the frontline innovators of healthcare. And then I started to get jobs that allowed me to enter into higher level conversations, the C-suite of healthcare. And I realized that a lot of my friends in those higher levels of, of policy circles and corporate circles had not had this experience that I've had. And so I, I wrote this guide. These are the people that you'll meet when you join the revolution. So it's really fascinating. And it's, you know, I kind of want to dig into a couple of points here because obviously you know, most folks listening to this show are coming from the provider side of healthcare. You know, that's most likely hospitals, but there's physicians or administrators or whoever that, that may be listening and, you know, probably even some of the other kind of veins of healthcare. And so I think reading the book, there's probably a little bit of a different angle of insight to your point, you know, some of the friends and people that you've met through the years but you call out kind of these four archetypes of seekers, networkers, solvers, and champions. Maybe talk a little bit about where that came from and kind of how you, you know, kind of uh, were able to script that out and, and a little bit of an understanding of who those people are. So as you alluded to in the intro, I spent 14 years at the Pew Research Center. My brief was to study the social impact of the internet on American society 
And I came to focus quite a bit of my research on how technology and the internet was changing healthcare. And we can talk about whether it changed it for the better or for the worse. (laughs) Um, But then I had the opportunity to conduct field work. So the Pew Research Center, the bread and butter is national telephone surveys. And I got this advice early on to spend time in online communities of people living with life-changing diagnoses, rare disease, because they are often the people who are living on the frontier and, you know, bending healthcare tools and technology tools until they break and rebuilding them. What I became intrigued by as a researcher and then later continued that work in, in other jobs that I've had, I was always really intrigued by what happens when someone gets backed into a corner in terms of the healthcare system. What happens when they fall off the conveyor belt of mainstream healthcare? Do they give up or do they come out fighting? Um, and what do they do? How do they react to that? And that's really the the genesis of these four archetypes. Because in looking back at my fieldwork notes and doing fresh interviews for the book, what I saw is that very quickly I saw the seeker archetype. Those are people who are not getting answers. They may not have a diagnosis or they're asking questions and not getting the answers that are satisfying to them. And so they go out on the hunt for information. They're not going to stop until they get what they need. Those are seekers. The second group are networkers. Networkers are people who learn in community. Yeah, actually, often people think of networkers when I start talking about peer-to-peer healthcare and the patient-led revolution. People say, oh, I got you. It's the Facebook groups. And I always say, yes, and. The, The networkers are likely to be part of things like Facebook groups. They also are people who, if they find something great that works for them or their kid or their loved one, they're likely to share it. And they're really, really powerful for healthcare marketers, by the way. The third group are solvers. Solvers are people who, if they're faced with any kind of a challenge, maybe an assistive device that isn't working or a medical device that they don't like the way it works, or actually a a system they attack that problem. They want to take it apart and put it back together better. And the fourth group, and this is the group that really only emerged as I started writing the book. I hadn't had them in mind as I started. The fourth group are champions. Champions are people who have access to mainstream resources, funding, regulatory guidance, Um, access to attention. A journalist could be a champion of a patient-led team. Mm. A champion recognizes when a group of caregivers or survivors or patients is doing something really useful and innovative, and they get them the resources that they need to scale it. Very cool. Can you evolve from one archetype to another I mean, are you, are you seeing that people that start as seekers and become networkers or solvers or vice versa or something like that? You know, when I first started writing the book, I was thinking that it would be an innovation pipeline that that people move through um, this evolution. 
But actually what my research found is that people um, can take on the role of a seeker, a networker, a solver, a champion. It's about the actions that you take in the moment to solve a particular challenge. Mm. And um, there are people who very strongly identify as one or two of the archetypes. For example, if if you are likely to, to think of yourself as a solver, that's probably a lifelong aspect of yourself. Or a networker, somebody who just can't help but share cool stuff with other people gotcha. in the community. Gotcha. No, that's very cool. Well, you, you, you said something. And so um, I'll reference Pew again, because I still share a lot of their articles with my team or with the research of my team and, and even with the listeners here and, and whatnot. But um, you mentioned the work that you did when you were there relative to the impact of the internet, right. On, on people, a society and ultimately healthcare and, and some things like that. And, and you talking here about like this patient-led piece being, you know, kind of core to connection. I guess the networking is an easy one, but certainly seeking, obviously, things like that. Um, talk a little bit about social media today, misinformation. Like, kind of, how do you reconcile that relative to kind of what you're talking about here in this patient-led piece? Thank you for bringing up misinformation because it is one of the biggest threats to us as a society, whether we're talking about politics, healthcare, frankly, anything. And I think that AI is just going to amplify the danger. So we as a society, as healthcare professionals need to look straight in the eye of this challenge. Peer-to-peer healthcare is a phenomenon that is not going to stop if we warn people against it. People are always going to want to connect to learn more about their condition or diagnosis or symptom. And what we need to do is acknowledge that this, frankly, ancient instinct that we all have to connect with each other is an unstoppable human force. And if we add incorrect information into that work stream, into the stream of the conversations that are happening with ever faster velocity online, that's when it's a that's when it's a tinderbox. There's good news and bad news. So so the good news is that there have been some really great academic studies showing that if someone is part of a healthy online group, and this can happen on an open forum, um, like on a, a Twitter hashtag group, or in a closed group on a on a platform like you know the Mayo Clinic Connect or Inspire.com or Patients Like Me, any of those closed ones, um, if somebody joins a healthy group, meaning there's lots of participants who are pro-social and pro-science, if somebody posts something that's incorrect, a piece of misinformation, the community will swarm it like the antibodies will swarm a virus and uh, very quickly tag it or show that, that, that it's wrong. Now, the danger is that, that 
online communities, especially social media, um, that's like a, a river that's always flowing and you dip your cup into the river, river and you might pull out some misinformation. You might pull out the advice that you need. Yeah. And so people need to learn about fact-checking. People need to also have access. I'm a big advocate for open access to all medical journals so that people can look it up for themselves. I think that's a really, really interesting point and probably comes more naturally to some of the folks like the seekers, right? Or even the solvers and and some of those folks. But I think social media is such an interesting thing to me. I mean, it's just what I did for so long and kind of built my personal brand around for so long. I'm just curious on kind of where this goes. Like I watch, you know, I've got a son that's a junior in high school and I don't understand what they do on Snapchat and TikTok and some of those things. Right. But that's where it's funny because as even I taught a Sunday school class of, of ninth graders last year, and I would ask them where they would learn how to do fill in the blank or whatever. And it was always TikTok. And I'm like, how, how do you like, that makes no sense to me. And so I think it's really interesting to think about this idea of those of us as providers are on the provider side. I'm not an actual provider, but on the provider side, how do we take into account and need to think about, you know, what's our role or the caregiver's role in these communities and these ideas? I like to pull the camera back so that I can see patterns in the use of technology. I call myself an internet geologist because I look at the patterns in the landscape. I like that. And if you if you pull the camera back, what people are doing on TikTok is not so different from what people were doing with you know blogs or Tumblr that people are sharing like at a very basic level. People are sharing their personal experiences. People are giving each other advice. People are teaching each other things. And it we used to be limited <laughs> because we only had like a little tiny grainy picture and a whole lot of text. Like that's what our generation was limited to. <laughs> <laughs> now there's there's video there's sound there's editing capabilities but it's really just the same as it's always been even when social media meant an email listserv it's still the same instinct to connect with other people and it's i always say everyone has something to learn and everyone has something to teach and social media democratizes the access to each other I think that's a really good point because I think some of us, when I say some of us, I mean me, um, when we think about social media, we think about our personal experience with social media. I was at South by Southwest and signed up for Twitter in 2007 and, you know, or or whatever, whatever the scenario was and highlight was going to be the next big thing. And anyway, you know, you, you had all these, you know, you're checking in on Foursquare and like all these things, but it's like trying to divorce yourself from this idea that that's everyone else's experience with it. It is probably something that is worth spending time on and kind of thinking through that as, as someone who is in an organization that's providing care and resources and things like that to certain communities. 
that that is probably something we need to spend more time kind of thinking about. I, I remember some years ago when I was in Austin getting to know Doug Ullman when he was the CEO at Livestrong and he's, you know, an ex time cancer survivor. And, and he talked about the first time that he got it, he got cancer. He it was, I think the summer after his freshman year in college. And so you're, t- you're talking mid nineties. He's like, I'd had an email address for like nine months, you know, kind of a thing. And it was a super rare deal. And, and he was talking about it in the guise of like privacy and that kind of stuff. But he was like, if I could have connected with everyone else that had what I had, I don't really care about privacy at that point. Right. And it's this idea that you always have something to learn and there's a network or a community there. And to your point, what a lot of this technology is allowed is allowed that to now happen. So if, if he would have had this today, you know, fast forward, you know, he would have had a different network or a different way to solve the same problem. Absolutely. And so many of us are looking for what I call a just in time, someone like you. They're, they're, you're, you're looking for that person at this moment who can advise you based on, you know, your experience, your, your age, whatever it is, whatever it is that, that is challenging you in your health. We wish that we had an advisor, a peer who was right there with us. And what I love tell people who are newly diagnosed, who, who aren't immersed in this world like you and I are, is there are people who would love to help you navigate this maze if only they knew how to find you. Mm. I urge people to think about how they can step into their power as patients. Or my message is not that everybody has to become a seeker, networker, solver. You can recruit someone like that to your team you might be exhausted. You might not want to join a community, but there might be somebody who fits the description of a networker in your life. And they can go out and find that just in time, someone like you. They can go out and find those people who would love to help you figure out you know, how to do those injections that you have to do or arrange your pillows so that you can sleep tonight. <laughs> you know, it's, it's often really practical stuff that a peer-to-peer healthcare group can help with, as well as the more complex stuff, like let's all hack into our medical devices and free the data. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. And you mentioned it earlier and it, and it's, it's on the cover of the book, the word, you know, the words field guide by sheer definition, that means like you should like use it in the field, so to speak. What is your thought or advice, you know, to those listening to this, obviously, you know, probably on the practitioner side or the health system side, marketing, communications, that kind of thing. How should people listening here extrapolate that, take that and use that information? Is there a practical kind of walk away for them? When I'm thinking about providers, whether those are clinicians or um, health system executives, if you understand that there are these archetypes in your population, you can understand their strengths and how you can align your mission with their mission and leverage this untapped reservoir of energy. If, if you are able to, for example, find the networkers in your population 
and and tell them the good things that are happening. Tell them about the the new treatment that's available for the people like them who have a certain condition or tell them about the new services that are available. The networkers in your community will spread out and and tell people about that message. You also might want to consider if once you understand what the seeker archetype looks like, you can better serve them as a customer. You can also make sure that when a seeker comes into your office, when a seeker comes into your hospital, you are ready to connect them with resources. Something so simple as at the end of an appointment, let's make sure that you can spell all of these uh, treatment options. Let's make sure that you can spell your condition name because I know you're going to go home and Google this. Let's just acknowledge that. (laughs) Yeah, it would be disingenuous to to think otherwise, I, I would think at this point. Yeah. Absolutely. And and what's awesome is that there have been some recent studies that show that Dr. Google is not all that bad, that Dr. Google is actually returning some valid results. And maybe it's actually a good thing that more people, that we should encourage people to be seekers because we don't want people just to give up, which is unfortunately the alternative. Rebel Health is the name of the book, Susanna Fox. You can find it on uh, Amazon. I did. We'll have a link in the show notes and all that kind of fun stuff. But certainly uh, I would encourage everybody to go out and grab a copy. Love to hear what you think about it. Connect with us on LinkedIn. You can track uh, her down on LinkedIn as well. And uh, certainly appreciate you coming on the show and, and visiting with us for a little bit. Longtime listener. Been fun. Thanks. Well, thanks so much, and uh, we'll have you uh, we'll have you back soon, and uh, we'll take a quick pause here. Then Chris and I will uh, be back to wrap up the show. Special thanks to Susanna for coming on the show. Um, I hadn't had a chance to talk with her in a little bit. I'm tra- I was trying to think. I, it was probably a conference or something last time I saw her, but. It was really great to see her catch up a little bit, uh, hear about the new book, and um, again, would encourage everybody to go out there and grab a copy. It was fun. Look forward to having her back soon. Absolutely. Quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Sign up for the TPS report. Um, You know, conferences not far away, so we're going to start talking about those before uh, too terribly long. You'll see some quick links to those uh, there in the TPS report as well. Let's do some recommendations, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap up the show. What uh, what are you going with today? Well, Reed, I'm going to recommend something. Um, it's uh, let me give you a little history here. Um, I have my mother's family is in Germany, and so I communicate them with a social platform, WhatsApp. Right, I communicate with them, and usually I can write to them in English, and they write back to me in German, which is fine because I understand German, no problem. But I've been really trying to hone up my German skills in part because. That's one of the languages we're trying to teach my little guy here at home, right? So, um, but I'm not that good at writing in German. I, 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 you know, unless you speak it every day, you know, you, it's you kind of lose the language. So, of course, I've been turning to translation apps, and we're all familiar with the Google Translator app, right? I think it's really a, a, a common app that's out there. Um, you've used it before, Reed. If you ever translated something, I have. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. 
But there is something about the Google Translate app that is a little bit not, it doesn't meet my needs. And I'll tell you why. In German, you have two different tenses when you're writing. You could either write in formal or informal tense. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it changes your pronouns. It changes the conjugation of the verbs, everything, depending on that. Now, here in America, we don't, we, we tend to be more casual driven. I mean, obviously, you know, when we say, dear sir or madam, it's like a bit, little bit more formal. But in German, you can say, how are you doing in, in two different ways? You could say, wie geht's dir, which is informal, how are you doing? Or wie geht es ihnen, which is the, which is the formal version of it. And so those two examples right there illustrate the fact that when I'm writing to my relatives in German, I don't want to default to the formal language. They clearly know I'm using a translator app if I do that, which, you know, they know I'm using it anyway, but still, it just sounds so weird. So I was looking online and I found a really good translation app for those of you listening in. I know this is a very unique use case. It's called Fairs Later, F-A-I-R-S-L-A-T-O-R.com. And what it allows you to do, it goes from English to a couple of different languages, German, French, Czech, or Irish. All of which, by the way, have a formal and an informal tense. And it allows you to take an English sentence and translate it to that other language in either formal or informal. And I'm using that more often now. I mean, it's almost become like my replacement for Google Translate. I don't want to be talking so formally to my aunts and uncles (laughs) and cousins. You know, it's it's a hard thing to comprehend here in America, right? Because we talk English and we're pretty casual. But in this particular case, it's a good use case. And that's going to be my very niche recommendation this week. Nice. I like it. What, what's it called again? Fairs Later. F-A-I-R-S-L-A-T-O-R. Fairs Later. I think that was an event in Central Texas. I'm almost positive. Yeah. Good stuff. I am going to recommend the Super Bowl. Now, I know it just happened as you're listening to this, but it's an interesting event. You're probably sidetracked with Taylor Swift. And so I would encourage you to actually go back and watch the game. (laughs) And not the commercials. That's right. right? That's right. Yeah. Just the game, break down the game film. No, I I kid, but the commercials, like I go back and I would be curious. I'd like to know people's favorite commercial. It's still one of my favorite things to do every year. This was, you, you remember how big a deal this was, like in the 80s and 90s of the Super Bowl commercial, that whole idea. I feel like it's lost some of its luster in recent years, but um, there's still some good ones. I'd be curious how many of them have a QR code or send you online. It's a fun event to watch, which I can't even imagine this year with Taylor Swift, what that's going to be like. But that's that's my recommendation. Go back, check out some of the commercials from this year maybe from years past would love to hear you know kind of what your favorite was so maybe we could we could do that next in next week's episode we could talk about our favorite super there you go very cool good episode this week it was kind of fun to to just riff on some of that and and of course uh anything we can do to get uh suzanne on the show is always always a plus so i really appreciate her Reach out, let us know how uh, 24 is off. Uh, if it's off to a good start, what's going on, what's new. I uh, would love to hear from you. If there's topics we should cover, people we should talk to, all that kind of good stuff. I've actually heard from several people in the last, I'll call it two weeks about the podcast and really nice comments. So that that's not, not lost on us. So we'd love to hear from you. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. 
This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.